Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On The Wing Podcast. Coming at you via the internet again. Yes, we uh, we like to do these in person, but... Well, we all know the state of the world right now. We're socially distancing, even in our podcast. So we are going to continue along with our Bird Dogs for Habitat themed month of podcast episodes. In this particular one, we're going to focus on introducing your bird dog to the e-collar. And uh, the fittingly, we have Sport Dog brand e-collars as our sponsor of this particular episode, they also happen to be sponsors of Bird Dogs for Habitat campaign, as is Rufflin Kennels, the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association, Project Upland, and Arena Pro Plan. So Sport Dog brand, uh, sincere thanks for your partnership on Bird Dogs for Habitat and for bringing our listeners this particular episode of on the wing podcast joining us is a representative the field specialist for sport dog brand josh miller a good friend a guy that i've interviewed a number of times uh during my years at kfan but he's making his uh debut on on the wing podcast good morning josh how are you doing today oh i'm good bob how are you I'm I'm doing all right. I'm uh, locked away in my basement, which <laughs> which uh, has got me socially distanced. But I'm also very healthy, and uh, the bird dogs are doing good, and the family's doing good. I trust you're doing well um, throughout this whole thing as well. We are, man. We are. We're. Uh, you know, luckily for us, um, we kind of social distance in a way every day, anyway, being with the dogs. And so, um, fortunately enough, our life is kind of you know continued as is, and we've just kind of got creative as far as how we're going to you know relay certain information uh, to clients. Um, we've started using a lot of like FaceTime and video chats to kind of bring them right. in so people don't have to be, uh, leaving their houses if they don't feel comfortable to do so. Um, you know, but, uh, but yeah, crazy time, you know, that we're living in and, um, you know, just kind of one of those deals that, you know, you just kind of bear down and get through it and, you know, we'll come out stronger on the other end. Yeah, right on. So I, I, I teased, um, you know, your representative of sport dog, We've done a ton of interviews over the years with KFAM. Um, and certainly folks that have attended National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic over the course of the last 10 years recognize your name. But um, maybe give a short biography for folks that don't know you or haven't, uh, you know, haven't come across you. Um, you know, maybe they've been living under a rock. Because <laughs> <Right? 'Cause laughs> you you you've made a name for yourselves in so many different av avenues. I think about Riverstone Kennels, the the kennel in which you own. I think about being, I think, the first shed dog championship. Uh, that the first championship winner was you. That's with your, right. With your with your lab uh, Easton, if I remember that correctly, and You're you've right. been. Uh, you know, a, a field trialer, both with pointers and retrievers and horseback trialer. You've done it all in the dog world. And if folks see your photo, they're like, there's no way this guy's like 23 years old. So <laughs> give, give, give folks uh, your, the, the Josh Miller biography for folks that haven't met you before. 
Yeah, well, I don't know how interesting the Josh Miller biography is. It won't be a bestseller, but um, kind of the background is uh, you're right. You know, it, it has been really fun. You look back on the years, Bob, as far as what we've been able to do together. But, um, you know, for me, you know, first off, I'm not 23, I'm 30. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> a few years there. But, um, but you know, in my what I'd consider still a fairly short career being that uh, I've had the kennel now uh, for uh, I think it's been – I think, uh, well, this will be the 10th year and, uh, and you're right. You know, I think, um, you know, the, the shed dog stuff is definitely a, a niche thing that we were able to be successful in, but, um, you know, hunt really your know, retriever right now, uh, retriever hunt test is what we're doing the majority of. I think it fits, uh, the need for a lot of our clients, but I had kind of set out at one point to try to prove really that I could do it all. And, you know, I, I really, I was fortunate enough to have a lot of great mentors over the years that were uh, very successful in their individual, uh, you know, sport or game, whether it be your retriever trials, uh, you know, pony dog trials, uh, hunt tests, whatever it is. And uh, I, really what it led, you know, what, what led me down that road was having a great uh, group of dogs. And, um, you know, so, so first were uh, the retriever hunt tests and trials. Uh, really, I loved that. And that was really where my roots came from. And then um, I kind of, you know, got in that shed dog, you know, thing for a little bit and got super, um, you know, it was, it was exciting, kind of a niche thing, like I said, and then uh, went back to retriever hunt tests and trials. And the, the pointing dog stuff was interesting to me because uh, I always had a couple setters of my own, my wife, Whitney, uh, adores her setters and uh, as do I, but she loves it. And her, you know, she's definitely more of the uplander where I'm more of the waterfowler in our relationship. We both love to do both. <laughs> um, but so she loved having the pointing dogs. And so when, uh, when it kind of came to you, know, it's amazing how you know, everybody tells me I have the best job ever. And I wholeheartedly agree with them. Um, but it's amazing how sometimes you need to kind of, you know, take a mental break, you know, to kind of rejuvenate yourself. And so for me, um, that's where my pointing dog field trials came in because, you know, the competitor in me could still compete. It was still the dog side of things, which I thoroughly obviously you know, enjoyed, but that's what I, I love mm -hmm. to do. But it, it, it took away or it got me away from, um, you know, specifically when you're talking about, you know, field trials, it's like one dog is going to win. And it, it, it doesn't matter if you're running two or 22 dogs you have, even if you win, you have one customer that's happy and the rest of them are upset mm. because it wasn't their dog, you know? And so it mm. kind of wears on you after a while. And um, for me, I was like, you know what? I can take my one dog ranger and we can go, and this can just be my thing. Yeah, I do this a few weekends a year, have fun with it and just like have a, a release. And uh, so that led to, uh, I, I bought a horse and uh, and I had to actually borrow a bumper pull uh, horse trailer from a neighbor of mine. And so what I would do is, I would, I would take Ranger, I would take my one horse, uh, his name was Red, and I would take Red and we would go to a trial. I would unload Red, I would scoop uh, all the poop out of the back and clean the, the horse trailer the best I could. And I had a pop-up cot and I would sleep on that cot at night with Ranger in that horse trailer. And we would either freeze our tails off or sweat all <laughs> night and we would go run the trial and, and, uh, and he was extremely successful. And so what, you know, what it led to was, you know, some people saying, Hey, could you train my dog? Hey, could you handle my dog? Hey, well, it, in a very quick uh, period of time, my one horse and one dog turned into uh, four horses 
a bigger trailer, uh, 12 dogs I was running at a time. And it, hmm. it was unbelievable how it, how it escalated. And then it got to the point that uh, I looked in the mirror one day and said, I'm exactly back to where I was before what I was trying to kind of get that relief from. And the reality is you just can't do it all. I mean, that's why very few people have, have done all, um, all these games as far as, you know, the, the trials and the tests and both, you know, the pointing dogs and the retrievers. And so uh, it kind of came full circle as I came back to um, just kind of where my roots were, which was my retrievers. And uh, hmm. you specifically, you know, hunt tests seem to be a great fit for my clients of today. And so, uh, so that's what we're doing almost exclusively uh, today. And Ranger was an English setter. Yeah, he is actually. He was out of uh, right. you. Yeah, yeah, and you, yeah. He so he's still. Uh, he's actually only. I think he's six years old now, maybe seven. Um, but he was he was really really successful, and he was actually out of you being a, a bird dog guy. You probably know the name Shadow Oak Bo. Um, sure. You know, he, yeah, back to back national champion, and so he was out of Shadow Oak Bo. And so I wanted in the worst way just a bow puppy. I I uh, actually worked with uh, Diane Gates, uh, who uh, who had has bow or had bow, I should say, um, and you know got the right dog, and and he just he was so he was so interesting because he was one of those dogs that was so natural from a very early on. Um, now he had a very soft personality, like a lot of these bull puppies do. And so you had to really build him up the right way. But yeah, I mean, at, at, uh, going from field trials to the pheasant field, which is very difficult for a lot of young mm-hmm. dogs because they're going from, you know, quail, they're sitting fairly stationary, um, you know, to now birds are moving and running on them. And then, transfer that into the grouse woods, which I would almost argue that's where he excelled more than, than anything really? is in grouse woods. And so you think about, okay, I'm going to take a horseback trial dog that is ranging like crazy um, into the grouse woods, which it could be pretty dangerous to have a dog out there, you know, a thousand, you know, 1200 yards. Um, mm-hmm. and, and he was able to understand very quickly the difference of not only the difference that these birds, you know, interact with, with him and us, um, but then how to hunt these birds. I mean, he sucked right in, yeah, in that cover. When we hit an open field, he would stretch it out. And and I just think I I enjoyed hunting behind him so much. Um, because I it was just fun watching his wheels turn. But yeah, he he was and still is a, a very special dog. So for folks that you mentioned Shadow Oak Bow, we we should probably explain that a little bit. The 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 national championship for field trials held once a year. And for, I want to say, maybe 80 years straight that an English pointer won every single year, right? And my numbers might be off a little bit. And then Shadow Oak Bull, an English setter comes along and won it back-to-back years, right? And, and that made that the lineage or the bloodlines um, for Shadow Oak Bull, the offspring of Shadow Oak Bull, super high demand across the field trial world. But then also, as you mentioned, the the hunting world as well, because here's kind of, it's probably not a stretch to say the most decorated English setter in the, in our generation, well, in probably the last two generations. Right. Yeah. He, he was certainly a special dog and I actually had the pleasure of watching uh, Bo run and um, you're right. So, so not only was it uh, pretty, uh, I mean, it, it was, it was very, uh, I'm trying to find a different word than shocking, but that's kind of the way that it really was, um, that 
it wasn't an English pointer, right? Because pointers mm-hmm. just dominated that game for a number of reasons. And so the setter comes along, wins it. And then he goes and wins it again, which is even more outrageous. And uh, what sold me on Bo was not, not I mean, of course, the way he ran was impressive. The way he handled his birds was impressive. Everything about him was impressive. But then when I saw him, I watched him interact with the people that he was around. Like he was handled by uh, Robin Gates. Um, you know, the, the whole Gates family, obviously, is very involved. And to watch him interact, he was – the, the best way I can describe it is he was as lab-like as I could hmm. as I could find in a pointing dog as far as, like, he wanted to be around you. He was always looking in people's eyes. He was always wanting to, to follow people around. I mean, he was essentially a Labrador that you put him down on the ground, and he heard that whistle blast that says go, and there was, like, flames coming out of his feet because he was digging so hard. <laughs> and it, it was just – it was such an on-off switch, and, and – being a breeder, you know, myself, uh, you know, not of setters, of course, but of British labs, uh, that's something that I really look for is not only I'm a big believer in you can't just go off of pedigrees and say, I want to breed with this dog because of his titles. I mean, to really find the dog that I think we're all looking for, you have to go deeper than that and say, you know, what are his strengths and weaknesses? Because every, every dog has them. What was his personality like? What was his trainability like? What was his natural mm-hmm. side? And, and that's what kind of impressed me so much about Bo. And that's why I had to have a, a, a Bo puppy. Uh, and I've been super, super happy with him. Right, that's that's fun. And you, you mentioned British Labradors, and you're the owner of Riverstone Kennels. For folks that are listening that maybe have heard of British Labradors, talk about the difference between British Labradors and their American counterparts. Yeah, well, and so, um, you know, kind of the quick version of the story is um, when I was first training or when I started training, uh, I had American lab, I had a couple American labs, and basically that's all I ever saw. And yeah, the first few times I saw a British Labrador come in, um, to be quite honest, I was unimpressed. Yeah, it was like they didn't have the motor I wanted. They were kind of like kind of a slug almost. And I was like, what in the world is this about? And I just wasn't sold. Well, then I saw uh, from a very uh, well-known breeder that I knew was doing things you know, the right way. I saw one and I loved him. I was like, "Oh my gosh! Like this is this is what I, you know this is what I would look for as far as a dog I would own." And so, uh, being the dog nerd that I am, I had to you know dig more into this and uh, actually took a trip overseas and uh, through some people that I knew was able to have connections on you know. Uh, getting into a couple of field trials, being able to, um, you know, be at the front line so I could see everything. And uh, the first, uh, the first field trial overseas I ever went to, there was, uh, we we're up in the very, very north end of Scotland. And uh, I mean, in the middle of nowhere, it was, it was really a, a sight to see, but, you know, obviously there's, you know, big group of dogs and, and people and they did this field trial. And of course, when I think of field trial, I think of you know, what we do here, you know, we set up, um, you know, certain setups and we, you know, challenge the dogs to run, you know, whether it's precise lines or precise casts or whatnot. Well, their field trials are all on live hunts, which I thought was really interesting because, you know, no, no two retrieves are the same. Right. And then, mm-hmm. uh, and then also uh, every, you know, the train changes all the time. These dogs are seeing something new all the time and not. And so I guess um, I, I'm trying not to make this too long of a story for you, but um I watched these dogs do incredible things. I mean, uh, a lot of these dogs, you know, for me, I'd say I would own that dog. I would own that dog. I would own that dog. Hmm. I mean, big, big motors doing incredible retrieves, you know, over fences because there's a lot of, you know, uh, 
you know, like these cobblestone fences, they're over fences, you know, through rivers. I mean, just, you know, uh, on what they call runners, which are crippled birds, which run and take off. And um, what impressed me most is how these dogs were able to stay on these crippled birds. I mean, I watched a dog, you know, track this crippled bird a long ways and literally was flushing other birds and stayed on that crippled bird until he found it. It was pretty unreal. Well, then I, hmm. I come back um, into, it was like a hotel slash pub um, that again, in the middle of nowhere. And so I go up and take a shower and I'm kind of reflecting on, you know, this day, because this is um, not really what I expected. And I come down into the pub to have dinner and uh, meet up with some people. And I come in, in the pub, I come around the corner of the, the bar and there are, all the dogs that I just watched running this trial at the bar stools of their owners, just laying there, calming. They were, you know, looking around, but they were very calm and under control. And it hit me right there. It was like, you know, this is exactly what, what I consider, you know, upper 90%. Yeah. I would even venture to say 98, 99% of us, if we're honest with each other, 99% of us want is that dog that has the big motor in the field, but they can come in and just shut it off. And, you know, some of the things that they were looking for in this trial, such as um, I watched a dog get, get uh, disqualified from this trial because he made a noise and the noise was he yawned. And at the end of the yawn, as dogs do, they, he just went, oh. and the hmm. judge looked at him and said, he's out. And I, I, like, what? I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, like they're, they're taking some serious measures here with, hmm making it to where the noise is unacceptable and i i I was like wow and then it took me like a minute later i'm like oh my gosh that's what i want in a duck dog i don't want a dog that sits with me for five hours and is crying and is whining and you know because i can tell you that uh i i mean i can think of the last test that i was on we had you know we're at a a finished test and um i ran my series and sat and uh and the dog that was honoring my dog run the whole time was just screaming, but he did the work and that dog passed and I'm going, okay, for what I'm looking for, this fits. I think this fits a lot of um, what we're looking for as far as family dogs go, because I would say, you know, almost every single dog that we get in now is a family member first and a hunting dog second, the reality of it. And so you have to have that dog that has a great temperament, a great personality. And I think, you know, we're kind of past the days where people don't want to fight with their dog. They don't want to, you have to, you know, we always kind of, you know, use the word, you know, two by four dog. You don't want to have to hit them over the head with a two by four to get their attention. You know, you want that dog that is very willing to please, wants to be with you. And I just think these British dogs for what they're looking for and what they're breeding for as a result, I think it fits what so many of us are looking for here. And so um, that's kind of what, what I'm looking you know, at. My, my dogs is, um, you know, I'm trying to get that dog that I think fits all and checks all those boxes. And uh, I'm really, really happy uh, with where we're at right now in our breeding program. I think a lot of people have talked about the British version being a little bit smaller and a little different head size from a physical appearance too. Is that, is that accurate or is that, um, you know, they're individual? Yeah, I'd say that they're individual. I'd say uh, very similar to here where, certain lines tend to throw certain traits. I'd say that, uh, that that fits over there too. I mean, you know, yes, there are certainly some dogs that are smaller 
but I would also mm-hmm. say that there are certain dogs that are, are bigger too. I mean, um, so I have two personal, you know, two of my personal, I think I have like nine personal, I know I have nine personal <laughs> dogs now, <laughs> but two of my personal dogs are, are both, you know, British dogs. Uh, one now is male, female, but it's, it's a good example. So Sage, uh, Sage is uh, very petite. She's, I think, 47 pounds or 48 pounds. Um, and, you know, she is, I mean, she's very, like I said, petite, where I have uh, Brock, who's uh, who's a male of mine, that I think he is 78, uh, much leggier, much bigger build. And uh, and he is not at all, you know, short. And hmm. he's not, he's very, you know, leggy, I'd even say an athletic. And they both have, you know, their fits where um, Sage, being as small as she is, uh, believe it or not, she's the best Canadian goose dog that I have. I mean, she just has the heart of a lion. Um, you know, she just loves every bit of that challenge. And uh, in the field, say up here uh, in you know Minnesota, Wisconsin, the Dakotas, field hunting with her is fantastic. Where I go down south um, and, and I try to spend as much time uh, in in Arkansas. Uh, for my winners, just kind of trying to catch that last bit of duck season, she struggles more in say the uh, the flooded timber or the flooded fields because you know uh, running water turns to swimming water or lunge water much quicker for her versus Brock, who is a leggier dog. He can you know power through some stuff, can get over some of those logs and terrain that we deal with down there um, easier than her. And so um, I say you know they all have their place, and I think that's what is fun for me from a breeding you know standpoint is that. I get to work with people and and really try to find their ideal dog, you know, whether that's, Mm -hmm. you know, size, temperament, you know, color, uh, drive, uh, you know, personality, whatever that is. And that is a really fun thing. And it's, it's, it's fun how, you know, you, Bob, you and I are like this, but I'm sure everybody listening is like this where you take so much pride in your dog. You spend so much time with them. Um, And so for me, probably the best part of being a breeder is being able to keep up with these people. And, and I mean, I have people that are, I just got an email this morning, you know, from a dog that is, I think uh, she's 11 years old now. And you know, he still sends me pictures. You know, I, I think I, I trained with her 10 years ago and still mm-hmm. sends me pictures, tell me how Della's doing and, you know, how she's, how, uh, you know, she's looking forward to the next bumper, you know, tomorrow. And um, it's just kind of fun. <laughs> you know, it's really fun to have the, it's around the dogs, of course. Right. But the relationships that we're able to, to get and build with people, that's really, I think, what makes this thing ultra special. Right. And, you know, we uh, the last episode I recorded was with a mutual friend of ours, Tom Dockin. And we were talking about, um, you know, this is the season where a lot of people are getting, um, adding puppies to the family. And in with, with COVID and the virus, the pandemic that's happening, um, you know, it is limiting travel for a lot of folks where they maybe had their name on a, on a pup and they're not able to pick up the pup right now. But then at the same time, there are folks that are in the same communities as some of these breeders and they're working from families are working from home and they're like, Hey, it's a great time to add that second bird dog or add that new bird dog because we're at home. We can potty train. It seems like there's a dynamic here that it's tough for some, but it's working out beneficial for others that it's balancing everything out as a breeder are you seeing that as well where there's some added demand for puppies this spring because of how many people are working from home you know we are um i I would say it's a little different in our case just because um we have uh so if you were to call us today 
want to put down a deposit for a puppy, uh, you're a year to a year and a half out before you would get that puppy. Um, positives and negatives, right? So positive is uh, hopefully that shows we're doing things the right way. Um, you know, there's a reason why we have that waiting list. You know, but the, the negative is if if someone is in the situation where they're like, hey, my life is changing. I want a puppy right now. You know, we couldn't uh, we couldn't provide that for them. Um, the flip side of that is um, I think we're seeing a lot of people that are spending more time with their dogs at home right now, whether mm-hmm. that's you know, training or exercise and whatever it is. And so we are seeing uh, more people get on that that waiting list, even knowing it's a year and a year and a half out, because I think mentally you just kind of click back into it and go, OK, this is something that I want to look forward to. This is something that kind of refreshes in your mind. And they do that where we're struggling uh, with COVID and everything that's going on is, is like you said, the long distance piece of it, because we have so many people that are long distance clients. And so uh, the last litter of puppies that we shipped out, uh, we had one go to British Columbia, one go to Alaska, one go to California, California, two to Texas. Um, hmm. I I think every single one of those puppies left on a plane of that, I think it was a litter of eight. And, uh, and so coming up, we have, uh, three litters, uh, starting in about a month and they're kind of, you know, spread out about two weeks apart from there. Uh, you know, but if this thing keeps going on, you know, we're going to have to get creative with, with, uh, with how we, how we combat that. Um. Yeah, and, you know, it'll be something that we'll have to cross that bridge when we come to it. Of course, we knock on wood that, you know, there's a solution to this thing. We get over it. Everybody you know, can kind of go on with their lives. But um, I think right now, business wise, we're all planning for worst case and hoping for best. And so we're already kind of working on um, some ways to, to overcome that hurdle. Right. Um, well, I hope all goes well for you as we uh, as we transition to uh kind of the meat of our conversation today and again thanks to uh sport dog brand e-collars for being the uh um, sponsor for this particular episode uh i I think when most folks come to pick up a puppy at your place or any other kennel around the country they start the potty training process the minute that they uh put the pup in uh in their vehicle and head home but they don't necessarily start the rest of the training right away. What's the right timing beyond potty training where you start laying the foundation for being the bird dog you want uh, that that pup to become? Hmm. Well, so there's a number of different ways to answer this, but I'll, I'll answer this in kind of the most broad you know, way that I can to, to reach as many people, which is I believe you start the training process the second that you pick that puppy up and because you think about every situation that you put that puppy in every interaction that you have with that puppy that puppy is learning you at that young age they're just they're a sponge right they pick up everything they want to learn they want to be with you they want to follow you and so um yeah it's it's kind of incredible how uh how often we get dogs that are dropped off here at the kennel for training that the response you know from people is I didn't want to screw him up, so I didn't do anything. Well, mm-hmm. uh, on one hand, you were doing you know, something, whether you realize it or not. Um, but then, two, I think you know where you're going, Bob, is that you know, there is there is a way to start this thing off, right? And I think um, everything really stems from obedience. And so, you know, the obedience piece of things, even if it's just something as simple as as sit. Now, I'm saying retriever wise. If you ask me about pointers, yeah, I'm I'm against sit until we have that that whoa uh, foundation down. Um, but you know, even if it's something as simple as that, you know, with a treat, 
you're you're working now i'm not saying you're going to go train you know train train for you know you know 10 or even five minutes a day every single day but i'm saying just like here and there kind of work on that and, and as that as that puppy builds in maturity um in size and you just kind of keep ramping it up and um a saying that that i really like uh, that a good friend of mine chris aiken always said was with anything in dog training it's crawl walk then run I think too many times people want to go from basically sitting still to running and it doesn't work like that, you know, so you have to gradually build up. And so uh, to put it into school terms, you know, you have, you pick up, you know, this, this baby and, you know, you kind of start putting them through preschool, right. Where, you know, we're not worried about coloring inside the lines. We're not worried about your county. We're not worried. I mean, we're just worried about basically your health and that you're moving in the right direction, you know, mentally, and you're kind of building that foundation. And then you mm-hmm. kind of get, where you can see, okay, now we can handle a little more and you gradually, you know, work up to it. And I think, I, I think that what, that's one piece is, you know, continuing that process, continuing the, the development of your dog. But then there's the flip side that I see once in a while too, which is people get so worked up into the training piece of it that they hammer it into these puppies. And we see this a lot because I think um, more and more breeders are doing a great job breeding and producing very very intelligent puppies and so what happens is these puppies pick up on things so quickly that the temptation is okay i'm going to keep going with this and i'm going to really hammer this down and so you'd be surprised how many dogs come in for we do a, a burning gun introduction at five months old the reason we do it at five months is because they're still young enough to kind of wake up those instincts they, they're that little sponge yet so they want to be doing things they want to be with you um, it's a great age to capture that plus Hopefully at that point, they haven't had any negative experiences with, you know, fireworks or anything like that, right? So um, looking at that, when we see dogs at five months old and we see people that have just hammered obedience into this puppy, well, this puppy thinks that life revolves around in a five-foot radius around whoever is handling them. Now, all of a sudden, we're like, you know, no, go, you know, be free, go find this bird, go be enthusiastic, go have fun. Um, and sometimes those dogs struggle with that because they're so willing to please, they want to be around you. And so um, I always kind of uh, put a caution out there that, yes, you should be doing some obedience. Yes, you should be kind of developing that puppy uh, at the correct pace. And for every dog is going to be different, but also allow time for that puppy to be a puppy. You know, and it kind of you know, sounds silly to say that, but, um, right. you know, it's just, just like a kid, you know, I mean, you don't start, you know, preparing, you know, for the ACTs at, at you know, the, a first grade level because you want them prepared for it because you're going to burn that kid out to the point that they don't want to do it. Right. It's, it's the, you know, the same or similar with these dogs is that you got to give them that time to be free and have fun and be a puppy. And that's a different for every pup too, right? Like some, some dogs some puppies mature a whole lot faster than others. And for owners out there, they shouldn't get worried about that. Right. I mean, like, you know, a a puppy that isn't ready to be introduced to the gun at six months, that's okay. Right. The the bigger problem, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but the, the bigger problem is trying to rush to that point rather than letting your pup just kind of evolve to, you know, maybe gun introduction should happen with an individual pup at eight or nine months, just because they, their confidence level takes a little bit longer to evolve. Is that accurate way of assessing it? 
No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And what I would say is that the worst thing that you can do for your dog is because especially people training at home, if, the, if this is your first dog in particular, you're going to read every book, you're going to watch every DVD, and you're naturally going to get timelines as far as, okay, I should have this done here, this done here, this done, this done here. But you hit it on the head where every single dog is different. And I know that kind of sounds like a cop-out answer, but it's truly the fact mm-hmm. of the matter. Because I've, I've always said that the, the way that I could do my job best is if I could take timelines off the table. So instead of me saying, hey, I'll have this done in three weeks or three mm-hmm. months, if I could just ha- get your dog and people say, do what needs to be done, do it the right way, and however long it takes, it takes, that would be my ideal situation. Not because I want to you know, keep dogs for extended periods of time, but because I want to go at that dog's pace. There's nothing that is more handcuffing to someone in my situation as a trainer than timelines go. And I think that should hold true back home too, is that do not feel like there, there's a certain timeline that you need to have certain things done. I think the biggest luxury of training your dog at home is that you can take those handcuffs off and say, you know what, if we don't get through sit in, in a week and it takes us six weeks, it takes us six weeks, right? But yeah. we're going to do it until we're proficient at it and then move on to the next step. And, uh, and the mental maturity part of things is it's incredible how you could take five dogs from the same litter and oftentimes they're going to mature differently. And you have to look at each one of those puppies as an individual when you're talking about training time, you know, timeline, all that kind of stuff. And so, um, yeah, so you hit right on the head. Yeah. So it's interesting because, um, I, I've told this story to some folks, uh, before where I'm on my fourth short hair out of the same bloodlines, the first three, about five months old, did uh, bird introduction, uh, gun introduction, and we were hunting by six months old. My current puppy, Gitchy, at five months old, she, uh, sh- we tried to do bird introduction, and she hid behind me <laughs> for the first, uh, the first three attempts at bird introduction. And had she been the first puppy that I'd have, I think I would have been stressed out to no end, like, oh my God, I don't have a dog that wants to hunt. But because she's the fourth, that level of patience is there now where like, and the fact that she's my first winter puppy, you know, there's, I got all the time in the world to get ready for hunting season. There's, there's so little pressure, but the point is, I know there's folks out there listening that their, their five month old puppy or six month old puppy isn't showing a lot of prey drive yet. That's okay. You, you got plenty of time, right? You got your whole, that, that pup's entire life ahead of you. The key is keep working with them, take you, be patient and, and work through the process. So, you know, we're not going to talk too much about bird introduction and gun introduction today, but I do want to focus in on e-collar introduction because that is another point where you, you know, as you mentioned, you know, crawl, walk, run. An awful lot of folks um, buy that e-collar. It's probably the first purchase that's made after the puppy. And, you know, they're trying to find a strap that fits on that puppy's neck, you know, when really they should be thinking about this, like you mentioned, crawl, walk, run. So let's talk about the e-collar process specifically. What's the crawl? What's the walk? And when can you reasonably expect to start running with an e-collar on a bird dog? 
Yeah, and so one, I think you're right. I think you know, way too often, you know, people get this, you know, this e-collar, and they're like, "All right, we're going to start working. We're going to start, um, you know, getting getting this work done right now with this collar." So one, that's not going to happen. Um, the other aspect of it is that I'm yet to find a person or have a person come up to me at a show that says, "I have the best, well, most well-behaved dog you'd ever find. I need an e-collar." And what they're doing is more quite the opposite of, you know, uh, this son of a gun doesn't want to come when he's called <laughs> have knee power, and they have almost this perception like it's a magic wand in a box and this is going to make my problems go away. And so neither right. one of those are, are, are the correct application. And when we really talk about our e-collar work, we go back to, to where I start all of my e-collar work, which is on the leash. And the reason that is, is because the e-collar is a reinforcement tool not a teaching tool. And so what I mean by that is that it, it is there to reinforce things that you've already taught the dog, not to actually teach the dog. And so the leash is a great example. You know, again, um, let's use a basic, um, a basic command such as sit. You ask the dog to sit, naturally what do you do when all of us are training? We apply pressure on that leash, we say sit. As soon as his butt hits the ground, that pressure comes off. And, and what we're doing with that leash is, is we're teaching them things. We're teaching what pressure is, we're teaching them how to take pressure off, and we're teaching them what that command is, right? And so uh, those, those number of things we're doing every single time we use the leash. And as we kind of gradually go through that, of course, we're doing the same thing with come, we're doing the same thing with heal, all the commands, you know, basic commands we're using. I will not go to the e-collar until I'm extremely proficient on the leash, like to the point that I'm hardly having to use that leash at all. And, and, you know, let me back up for a quick second, because a lot of times people ask, you know, what happens when I ask the dog to sit, I apply the pressure and the dog doesn't sit right down, right? Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, sit again, apply more pressure, sit again, more pressure, sit again, more pressure until you, you have that dog comply. But what you're communicating with your dog at that point is that one, you're not going to get out of this. And then two, this pressure is only going to increase. And some of you guys can already see where this is translating to the collar. Um, but that communication piece is very important is, is how and what you're communicating with your dog. Define pressure with the leash. So pressure with the leash, uh, I really prefer to use a slip leash for this because uh, you really can't get a, a pressure very well uh, with just a clip-on leash you clip on to say a collar strap. And so think of a slip leash. So when it's around your dog's neck, if you ask that dog to sit and you pull up on that leash, you're going to naturally make that leash get tighter around that dog's neck, right? And so that would be the pressure. So as soon as his butt hits the ground, again, complying with sit, you let down on that leash and that pressure then releases, right? So what I mean when I increase pressure is sit, pressure comes on, I pull on that leash, right? They don't do it. I say sit again, pull up again, the pressure gets tighter. Sit again, that pressure gets tighter as I pull up until that butt hits the ground. And then that, that pressure then comes all the way off. And so again, communicating wise, what I'm trying you know, to communicate is what I said before, you're not going to get out of this. This pressure is only going to increase. And as a result of doing this and being consistent with it, what you're going to see is you're going to get to a point that now if you had to you know, do four pressures the first time now all of a sudden you only have to do two and then it gets to the point that you 
use it once and then to the point that you're rarely using the leash at all because the dog understands what that the next you know steps are and it's just easier to listen that first time right it's easier to have no pressure both for you and for him so then yeah as we kind of transition you know to that e-collar we'll just stick with that sit, that sit command is i think the biggest mistake that people you know, make here is that they go right from the leash they take the leash off, they put the e-car on, and expect that it's the same thing. And so although we're going to communicate the, the same way, which I'll explain in a second, you have to realize this is a different feeling. This is a different sensation. This is not going to hurt your dog in any way. This, uh, this is simply, to me, this is replacing the leash and going to be what I like to call my invisible leash, right? Because I'm not actually going to have the physical you know, cord on him. So how we do this is... Let's do an intermediate step, a transitional step. I love transitional steps because uh, I always like to say I don't like to flip coins and hope something works. I want to put in the extra time and make sure that it works. And so that's what I'm mm -hmm. going to do here, this transitional step. So I have I have a dog that's very good at, you know, sit, pressure comes on, sit, you know, sits down, goes off to the point again, I'm rarely using the leash. Now the transitional step is I'm going to use the leash at the same time that I'm using the e-collar. So what happens is the e-collar is on the dog, right? We sell over slip lead on. And when I say sit and apply pressure by pulling up on that lead, now I'm going to mimic what I'm doing on my leash with my e-collar. So if I'm saying sit and doing that light pressure, I'm going to hold continuous pressure on the collar on level one, right? If I have to go more, I'll go sit again, more pressure on, on the lead, click it to level two, sit it continues pressure level two when the dog complies both pressures come off and by 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 staying consistent with this right so sit both pressures on the dog sits down both pressures come off by staying consistent with this what you're going to do is you're going to end up teaching the dog that the e-collar is the same exact thing that the leash and how he comes to this conclusion because let me back up and say this is why you have to do this transitional step because the first time you, you use an e-collar at all, you're liable for a hundred different you know, ways a dog could react to it. What you don't want is the dog to be out of control when that happens. So what you're doing is, is by having the leash on him, you're giving him a constant that he already understands, right? So again, let's go back to that sit. So sit, both pressures come on. The dog might look around dog might scratch at his ear the dog may you know may actually try to like kind of run away from you for a half second because he again new sensation now as he goes through the checklist in his head he's eventually going to get to the point that he goes i don't know what this new thing is but i do know what this leash is and how to turn it off and when he does that and both pressures come off I, i'm telling you bob you do this like four or five times and you can almost watch the dog go oh my gosh it's the same thing and mm -hmm. so when you again stay consistent a bunch of repetition on this and get to the point that you're like all right i'm hardly having to use this leash at all i feel really good about how he's responding to the e-collar then you can take that leash off and just use the e-collar but you use it in the exact same way you would the leash so now again sit push the continuous button on the collar on level one the dog sits down pressure comes off okay same thing with come come Pressure come, you know, put the pressure on by hitting that continuous button. The dog comes to you, pressure comes off. Again, it's, it's the same thing. Pressure on when the dog complies, pressure comes off, but it's with that collar rather than on the leash. But it's just so important to teach on the leash 
versus trying to teach with the e-collar. Right. The analogy is, you know, you're using your laptop and at the office and you got it wired in, right? That's the leash. And then right. when you take it home and you want to go wireless, right? There's, there's a difference there. Uh, and that's the e-collar. Um, you, you mentioned continuous at level one a bunch. And the reason you're on continuous is to have a constant pressure, not intermittent pressure, right? Right. So uh, again, think back to uh, the, what I said about trying to mimic the leash. So with the leash, when I when I ask him to, or him, our hypothetical him, that's at sure. my side. Um, when I asked my dog to sit, I applied continuous pressure on that leash, right? I didn't go bump, 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 bump. It was continuous pressure on that leash until he complied and pressure came off. The reason I want to mimic what I would do on the leash, again, is I'm trying to communicate and make things very easy for my dog to comprehend. So if all of a sudden I, I went from continuous pressure on the leash to bump, 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 bump on the collar, I may all of a sudden be speaking Spanish to him where he does not understand what it is I'm asking. So I'm trying to mimic exactly what it is on the leash. Um, a lot of questions uh, or one of the bigger questions that we get around the e-collar comes from how do I use the e-collar the e and when do I know how to? And, and I guess how to is like what level, okay? Mm -hmm. So what I would say is keep that in mind. If I had a leash, how would I be using it right now, right? So um, let's, let's use two extremes. My dog is at my side. We're in a very calm setting in the neighborhood. I come to a crosswalk. And I just want my dog to sit down. There's no distractions, no anything. And I say, sit. But I look over and he's distracted by a butterfly, something like that. I wouldn't jerk that leash up as hard as I could and give it an extreme correction, right? Just like I wouldn't turn my e-collar all the way up in that situation and give a very hard correction. No, I would give a slight, you know, correction like, hey, pay attention. Just a little, you know, little, you know, bump, continued mm -hmm. pressure. Oh, my gosh, I have to pay attention. The dog sits back down. Same thing on the e-collar. On the e in that situation, I would use just a level one, right? Level one, get the dog focused back, make that the light correction you need for appropriate for the situation. The other extreme, let's just say, now we're, we're by the road and my dog is running towards the road, right? This is not the time, if you had a leash on that dog, that you would do a light, come, come. No, he's mm -hmm. going towards a dangerous situation. You would probably put every muscle you had into it and tug as hard as you can to stop him from hitting that road, right? Same thing with the collar. This is where I'm not a big advocate of going all the way up on the collar, but if it means avoiding a dangerous situation and that's how I would use the leash, I would crank it all the way up, stop him, bring him back, and then just go back down to my lower levels. But I, I'm really big on staying at a low level if you can for the majority of the work. And the reason is, is that I believe the dog of today is much different than the dog of you know, years ago. Yeah, I think of my grandpa had uh, had a big chocolate lab named Warden and Warden was like, you know, the brute, right? He, he lived outside in the kennel. He was like, you know, I was told as a kid, you don't play with him because you're going to screw him up. He's a hunting dog, right? <laughs> now my grandpa has a dog that lays in bed with him at night. And that's just the reality of the swing of society. And so breeders, are breeding dogs that fit that bill more, which in turn creates softer dogs. Softer does not, soft does not mean bad. Softer just means a different personality. And so we have to do what's best for the dogs. If you have a dog that is very soft, temperamented dog, being high on the collar all the time 
or uh, even the leash for that matter, mm-hmm. is a great way to make that dog start walking on eggshells and suck into you and really become sticky where he's not confident doing what he's supposed to be doing, right? Uh, the low levels allow you still the same you know, correction, the same safety that the e-collar provides at a distance, but it does it in a way that that is, is well communicating to the dog to where he can still be confident, he can still do what he's supposed to be doing, but at the same time, you have that that connection. So the fundamental moral of an e-collar is for you to think about it as a leash and have trained your dog to understand the command that you want that dog to do. And the leash or the e-collar becomes the leash in a virtual sense to reinforce when the dog is blowing you off. But the key is that dog has to know, has to unequivocally know what you want out of that dog, correct? Correct, correct. And the only way to teach that is by getting in, we we call it yard work because it's basic on-leash work, but to get in the yard and do that work and get really proficient at it. This is not where you go from crawl to run this is where the walk is very important. You crawl, walk, run, make sure you have a, a transition to get to that point. Um, the e-collar is not something to introduce when for a retriever doing retrieves. This is not a, a, something to introduce uh, on a live hunt. This is not something to introduce uh, for a pointing dog when he's, he's standing on birds. This is something that has to be introduced in a controlled situation. I truly believe that the e-collar is one of the best tools that, that any of us as dog handlers or owners can have because it allows us the communication at the proper time. Think about, you know, for your bird dogs that are hunting out in front of you, uh, for the retrievers, yeah, I'm thinking, um, I just sent a dog on a 200 yard blind retrieve. I blow a whistle, which means stop. He doesn't do it and goes, no, I think I know better. I mean, there's no, if, if I don't have a collar on him, I have to literally run out there mm. to make it correct. And by the time I've reached him, the reality is his he's mentally moved on, doesn't understand why it is that I'm out there, why it is he's getting a correction. And so it 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 just allows you to communicate smoother, more efficiently. And I truly believe it helps these dogs learn uh, as a result of it because of that that clearness. Um, but it has to be introduced the right way. I, I really believe it's one of the best tools you can have, but it has to be introduced the right way. So when I look at most e-collars these days and I'm thinking about We'll get into the GPS versions in a moment, but let's think about, I own the Sport Dog 875, the Upland uh, version with the beeper because I run pointing dogs. And if you look at it, there's an awful lot of buttons on there, right? What, for the person that's learning, how important is it for them to understand that unit that they own? And what's the role that tone, vibrate, momentary, and continuous play in the training process or do you lean on certain buttons way more than others? Yeah, I, I definitely do. I lean on that continuous button more than anything else. And again, the reason is because I'm trying to, I'm trying to make this my invisible leash. Well, my lead that I have, you know, doesn't have vibration um, and vibration. You can't ramp up and down like you would on a leash, right? As we kind of refer back to what we just talked about with our on leash training, um, the tone work, I mean, it, it doesn't, uh, the introduction period, right. I'll, I'll talk about where it goes later on. It doesn't apply to what I'm trying to do personally. Um, 
but it certainly does have applications later on. You know, I, I think of um, so many people use that tone as like a silent whistle, right? Where, you know, mm -hmm. beep, 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 beep is a recall. Um, I've, I've had you know, people that we've done work for that one beep is, is a sit. Um, they might think, well, why would you need something like that? Well, I've been in a lot of situations that, you know, my dog is uh, running through lunch water, the wind's blowing and howling, and he gets out there far enough that he can't hear my whistle, right? Well, if I give him a correction in that point, my dog's going, what in the world did I do wrong, right? Where now the beep, 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 it's just the same as me on a whistle, tweet, 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 tweet. Well, I know that's come, so turn around and come back, get back safely to me, rather than keep going and potentially get in a dangerous situation. So there's certainly applications for it, but oftentimes what I'll do is when we have a client that is learning the collar, because it is so important for you to be comfortable with that remote, is I'll put tape over certain buttons just so it's out of their mind. Okay, so we're just using the continuous button when we're, when we're learning, when we as people are learning how to use this as the invisible leash. Okay. So for me, the, tr the, the hardest part of my job is not training the dogs it's training the people <laughs> because the people, you know, a lot of times, you know, you have something stuck in your head and mm -hmm. I'm trying to tell you, your dog doesn't respond to it well like that. This is how we have to do it. Sometimes it's really difficult for someone to just get over that habit themselves. So that's where, you know, what I'll do again, put tape over certain buttons, say we're just working with this button. Once we've conquered that, let's take the tape off of another one. Now we'll work something else um but the big thing is getting familiar with with your your uh, your remote and think about it, this is no different than anything that we have as far as as a hunter goes right like your shotgun you have to get familiar with your shotgun i mean mm -hmm. for me i go from an over under in the upland field where my safety is up on top to a semi-auto in the in the waterfall you know, field or woods where all of a sudden my safety is down by the trigger guard. I mean, if I'm not comfortable with that, I'm not going to be successful, right? It's the same thing here with this collar. Unless you're, you're comfortable with the remote, you are not going to have success with this. And so that's why it's so important to get familiar with your product. So let's get familiar with uh, some of the sport dog options. And I want to go through, you know, if you're going to, primarily be a duck hunter, what product category, which ones, one or two, you might point people towards. You're primarily going to be an upland hunter. And then if you're the all purpose hunter, you know, you, you, the guy or the gal out there that wants their dog to, to follow the seasons, you know, ducks to pheasants, to rough grouse, to, you know, Mern's quail. So let's start with, with waterfall hunters. Cause I know a lot of listeners, this might be pheasants forever and quail forever, but there's a lot of folks that, uh, that own labs and, and goldens and, you know, their, their primary bird that they want to chase are, are ducks and geese. Which, which sport dog products would you point them to, to focus in on and, and why? Across the board, you know, for a waterfowl hunter, you're probably taking the beeper collar out of it because uh, when I say beeper, I don't mean the tone on the collar. I mean the, the loud location, beep, beep, to locate where the dog is. Um, if, you, if you need to locate where your dog's in a waterfowl se setting, we probably have some training that we need to go back and do before going back out into the field. So take that option out. Um, probably take the GPS unit out for the same reasons. So we're just looking at e-collars at this point. Really, from there, um, across the board, the sport dog line, you go from the 425X uh, all the way up to the 1825X. 
the big difference is going to be range. So you have everything from, you know, 500 yards of range all the way up to a mile. Okay. So there's different schools of thought on this. One is why would I ever need anything more than that 425 X that has 500 yards? My dog is never making a retrieve that's 500 yards away. Right. And, uh, and I think that that's a legitimate thought, you know, because um, you, well, you look at the 425X, I think it's the best-selling e-collar that's out there. I think for that reason, it mm-hmm. gives you the most features, all the yardage you would ever need, and then it's at a great price. Um, then you go all the way up to the mile range or even, you know, the half mile, um, you know, three-quarter mile in there. And the question is, why would I move up? Okay. Well, this is going to hold true uh, for your upland hunters as well. But what I'm going to say is, whatever range you think that you need double it and the reason i say that is because you know these are just like walkie talkies where anything in between you and that dog can cut down on that range and for me doubling whatever you think you would ever possibly need is the the insurance right i mean that's the biggest reason people buy one of these products is is ensuring their safety of their dog right so to truly get that insurance I would double the range what you would ever think you would need. And that, that should kind of give you a good ballpark. Good guidance. And with the, um, with the, um, the 1825 and the, the 400 levels, they come with, uh, do they have vibrate in tone, momentary, continuous, the whole deal? They, they do. Yeah. And, and that's why I say the biggest, the biggest uh, difference of each model is going to be range. Um, there are some differences like the, uh, the 425 X handles three dogs while the 1825 X handles six dogs. Um, if you can handle three dogs in the field, let alone six, uh, you're a way better dog handler than I am <laughs> because I, I can tell you for me specifically, you know, waterfall hunting, I'm one dog, uh, upland hunting. I like to run, you know, two, uh, but any more than that gets really, really tough. Um, so what I would say is, you know, the, the big things are every, every one of those units is going to be waterproof. They're going to be rechargeable. They're going to have continuous momentary tone and vibration. So however you like to communicate with your dog, you're going to be able to do that. The big thing is range. What range do you need? And that's kind of where you'll understand um, which collars are the best fit for you. And then we move to the uplands. Um Pheasant hunters, quail hunters, grouse hunters. Is there, would you recommend the exact same unit for all three of the uplands or would you create, um, is there a little bit different application based on the bird you primarily chase? Well, I I think the difference really comes from um, the technology wise. So when we get to when you want to add on from what we just talked about, because really the waterfall inside, everything I talked about there, it transfers into the upland field for a lot of us. But the two big add-ons that you have on there is, do you want a beeper collar? Again, the location beep, not, not the tone on the collar. So location beeper collar or a GPS system. And what I'll say is um, I love the GPS systems. So oh, the beeper, beeper collar just as a um, location when the dog goes on point. So you don't have to hit a button or anything, but the, your dog locks up. And you might not know where that dog is. The location beep goes off automatically. So you can find that pup based on sound. Mm-hmm. Well, and so let's talk about that for a second, Bob, because um, the beeper collar, some people might ask why you would want a beeper collar, right? Well, you think about it, especially if you don't have a pointing dog and you're hunting retrievers, 
you have a young dog specifically or, or an older dog, but that dog goes on point in a area that you can't see the dog, whether the cover is too thick, too high, whatever it is. Without a beaver collar or a GPS collar, you do not know where that dog is, right? Because when that dog goes on point, that beeper is going to start going beep, 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 letting you know here's where your dog is. Without that, let's just say if we have just a normal e-collar, we don't know. So either we we go search, which ultimately usually leads to making a correction because you think the dog has run somewhere or is doing mm-hmm. something not supposed to, and you end up correcting the dog for doing exactly what he should be doing. He's doing everything right, which is the last thing you want to do. So the beeper collar is a great way uh, to do uh, to do that. Um, I know uh, a lot of guys will use uh, the beeper collar in uh, a run mode, being that it's either a five second or a ten second, where the beeper will go off every five or ten seconds, just one beep. And the reason that they're doing that is just so they can continue to locate where their dogs are at, specifically grouse hunting, where you can't see you're real far ahead of you. Different if you're on, you know, the the you know prairies of Kansas where you can see a long ways, or or uh, you know some of the terrain down in Texas or down south where you can see a long ways. Yeah, that might not be um, maybe as big of a necessity, but you start talking about you know northern Minnesota, northern Wisconsin, where yeah, I, I need to have it for the safety of keeping track of the dog. It's a it's a great tool. Um, kind of the next step up from that would be the GPS units, where it will essentially do the same thing, but be silent doing it. Right, so it's not going to have the loud beeps. It's not going to have um, you know sometimes you know, people can look at that as kind of a nuisance, right? Having to listen to that beep all day long. Um, I'll admittedly be one of them. I, I don't like listening to you know, beeper all day. I don't like listening to a bell all day. That's just my personal uh, preferences. But that GPS allows me to have the same safety for my dog without the beeps or the you know, the bells or anything going off. So um, the GPS is basically a full-blown handheld GPS, but it is connected with your collar, and you can see where that dog is, how fast they're going. If they, if they go on point, it beeps and vibrates your handheld telling you, hey, the dog's on point. You should look at your handheld, find your dog. Um, it's really incredible. And it's it's amazing how precise they are. I mean, I remember one time up in northern Wisconsin grouse hunting where uh, Ranger, the dog I talked about earlier, uh, you know, my beeper's going out or my, I'm sorry, my GPS is beeping at me telling that Ranger's on point. So I go find Ranger and I'm like, what in the world? Like I, it says I'm like you know, two yards from him. I can't see him. And I took one more step and I, all of a sudden I could see the tip of his tail. When I took that step, two grouse, you know, blew out of there. And I was fortunate enough to, to kill one of them, but I'm going, my goodness, without a GPS unit like that, or, you know, a beeper car would have worked as well. I never would have found him. I mean, he, he would have been doing his job standing there all day long. I never would have found him. And so um, I think finding the technology is incredible. What's out there finding the right technology that fits your personal hunting needs, I think is very important. Um, Cause really all of us want really at the end of the day is control and safety. You know, we want to be able to go out safely with our dogs in the field, no matter what we're, what we're hunting and be able to come home safely uh, and sound with our dogs. And so uh, all these tools at the end of the day, I think that's what uh, the biggest feature that any of these tools provide. Yeah. Yeah. That's right on. And you know, it's a couple other really cool advantages of the GPS units. You know, you mentioned it's a full service GPS. So you can, you as a human being can find your way back to the truck as well, which is awfully important, (laughs) (laughs) especially, uh, you know, if you're in the big uh, country of Montana or maybe the grouse woods in Northern Wisconsin. And, um, 
Yeah. So if you're a rough grouse hunter, you know, it'd be hard for you to convince me not to own a tech 2.0, you know, for, it's just, it's such a huge advantage for big, big wooded cover. I think you can make the argument that, um, you know, the 1875 with the beeper collar, if you're a pheasant or quail hunter on the, on the plains, in a, in a lot of instances, that's going to be what you need. But if you have a big running dog, the, uh, the GPS unit is a, is an advantage. The other advantage of GPS units, um, especially with a younger dog, a first year dog, you can follow the cookies of where they've been. And mm-hmm. I love being able to sort of examine uh, where a dog has been, where you have been, knowing if the dog is hunting good stuff, if you've already hunted the spot, if the dog's already hunted a spot, it does save some footsteps for you and helps you teach or helps you learn how your dog is coming along. Do you, do you use the GPS that way as well? Oh, absolutely. Well, and then you know, kind of take it a, a step further, um, going back towards kind of that safety piece of things. You know, think about, you know, like I know for me, I dread cornfields, right? Because inevitably, especially for my retrievers, they're going to hit one of those cornrows, go down the cornrow, and he's going to be way too far ahead, right? So I have to constantly be on them, and I can't really see very well. Well. Here, you know, having that GPS, I can keep track of where they're at at all times and make sure that that's not happening. Um, we have had dogs that, uh, you know, chase deer. Well, I think he's hunting. And instead of having to go through that panic stage, which a lot of us, if not all of us, have been in when we don't know where the dog is, we you know, we've all we all know you can put yourself in that panic feeling, right? It's the worst feeling in the world. Well, the GPS really gives you a good sense of just um, the security of, Mm-hmm. Well, I can look at my screen and know right where he is. Even if he's doing something wrong, I can know right where he is, which is, to me, uh, worth its weight in gold anytime you go out in the field. So a- as we start to wrap up, um, you know, when probably one of, the, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, and you've, you've already answered it, just not in so many words. You know, what's, where did most people run into trouble when they start using e-collars? And and you've answered that in the sense that they've they've rushed to the e-collar before they should have, right? They haven't reinforced the commands of obedience using a leash, and they try to put the e-collar on a dog to be the answer all to all their mistakes leading up to that point. Is that a pretty good a summarization of where people are going to run into problems when they just put the e-collar on? Yeah, I, I really think so. I think um, we live in a world today where anything you want, it's a click in Amazon, you know, gets it to you, you know, the mm-hmm. next day. And there's just no way about that with dogs, specifically as you talk about dog training and development. And so um, using it the right way, using it at the right pace, introducing it correctly, all those are vital pieces of really having a positive experience for, for both you and your dog uh, while using a product like this. But again, I really do believe that once you do all that, you are going to put yourself in a much safer and uh, a much more enjoyable place when you go hit the field. Any any final words of wisdom uh, related to training in a bird dog pup using an e-collar? Take your time. 
Yeah. That's the the biggest thing. You uh, unshackle yourself from the parameters of you know it has to be this time frame or it has to be at this age or it has to be you know these many days. Take your time, go through it the right way, and you'll be happy in the long run that you did it. Yeah, particularly take your time learning the unit before you even put it on the dog, because the worst thing you can do is putting it on the dog and start pushing buttons to learn it from that perspective, that's where you are going to make mistakes that damage the dog. And one of the wonderful things about sport dog is they do have a series of YouTube videos that, you know, we all learn a little differently. Some of us can read the booklet. Some of us need to watch YouTube. Right. And, and, you know, there's, there's some terrific YouTube videos. Uh, if folks want to, learn more about Riverstone Kennels, maybe want to drop you a note to ask you some questions. How do they, how do they learn more about Riverstone Kennels and get connected with you, Josh? Yeah, there's a bunch of different avenues. Um, you can get on uh, social media, follow us on Instagram, uh, Facebook. Uh, you can send us messages right on there and I'll answer those uh, for you or get back to you that way. You can also find us at riverstonekennels.com uh, and see our website and see everything we have to offer on there. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking all this time to, to help train in our bird dogs with us today. Anytime, Bob. Appreciate you, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Absolutely. Uh, folks, uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, Josh Miller, as you could tell, terrific guy, longtime supporter of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. He's been on the bird dog stage at National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic. Um uh, almost as long as it's been around, I think. Uh, so you can usually catch him at the at the show. We'll be in uh, Sioux Falls next year, and I'm sure Josh will be on that stage as well. Uh, if you want to, I invite you to, to check out Bird Dogs for Habitat at birddogsforhabitat.org. It's a great way to contribute to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's Habitat mission. Every vote you make with a dollar will be a vote for your favorite breed of bird dog. And will help us do our habitat mission. Special thanks to Rufflin Kennels, Perina Pro Plan, Project Upland, North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association, and of course, Sport Dog Brand for being a partner of Bird Dogs for Habitat. And this episode of On the Wing Podcast with Josh Miller. Thank you for listening. And I'm Bob St. Pierre signing off with. Words of wisdom, always follow the dog, something good will rise. Thanks, folks.